Good morning. Thank you for the privilege of being with you this entire frozen month. I trust that God will warm us as we worship together, and He'll give us a blessing that we didn't expect. Some of you may know that this is a special day in the life of the Christian church around the world. People are celebrating Epiphany. This is Epiphany Sunday, the Sunday in which we remember when the light of Jesus Christ first dawned on the nations. You remember when that was? When the three kings from the Orient, the three magi, came marching up to see Jesus. I mention that because I'm going to talk about the magis a little bit in the sermon. I don't want you to be surprised at such a strange reference. That's why it's there. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 8, a story with which you are very familiar, I'm sure. I'm going to read from verses 13 through 22, the middle of the story of the flood in the days of Noah. Verse 13, by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the, pleasant, the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all creatures as I have done. And here's the text, as long as the earth endures... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless us as we reflect upon it. Of people loved by Jesus Christ, I have heard a rumor. A rumor that some people actually like winter. And some of them attend this church. Now, some people like winter just because they like to see the seasons change. They don't like sultry summer. They like the brisk air of winter. Others like to see that beautiful blanket of white spread over the dull browns and gritty grays of late fall and early winter. And still others love that fairy tale look of forests, you know, after an ice storm when the weak sun glistens off the branches. My grandchildren love winter not because it's beautiful, but because they get to snowboard. Yesterday they were at Cannonsburg and one of them had to leave for a basketball game and he cried because he wanted to be out in the winter. He loves to snowboard. 
Any of you ever hear of Garrison Keillor? Garrison Keillor, a radio personality, humorist, who had the radio show Prairie Home Companion, in which he often talked about his uh, fictional hometown of Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, where it always snows, it's always frozen, and he talked about the blessing of winter this way. He said, like the prospect of death by hanging, winter tends to focus your attention. Winter can kill you, so it makes us alive and alert, and that's why we love winter. People like winter for a variety of reasons, it seems, but I suspect that most of you are like me, and you find yourself complaining about winter like the Magi in T.S. Eliot's famous poem, The Coming of the Magi. Here's how it goes, a part of it. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey, the way deep, the weather sharp, the dead of winter. That's how I think of winter, the worst time of the year, the very dead of winter. It's a time of, of discomfort and, well, dreariness at least, and a time of danger and death at worst. So I find it increasingly difficult as I age to tolerate, let alone enjoy, the icy blasts of the second worst winter in the whole United States. That's what Michigan has, you know. You read that last week, too. Well, all of that is precisely why I want to spend these few weeks with you in the dead of winter thinking about the special grace of God that comes to us in winter. I hope to warm your heart with the promises of God for the bleak midwinter. I did a little study of this scripture looking for all the occurrences of the word winter or snow or cold and discovered that there are a lot of them that suggest that winter can be a time of special grace, a time when some of God's most precious promises change our lives. Today, I want to look with you at the one we just read at the end of the flood. You know the story, how God, deeply disgusted, profoundly sad about the utter sinfulness of the human race, decided to open the floodgates of heaven and the springs of the deep and, and wash clean a world that was filled with moral pollution and spiritual corruption. The water covered the earth for over a year, from Noah's 600th year to his 601st year. That would have been a disaster that utterly disrupted the rhythms of nature. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. There was only water then, water, water everywhere, and death. 
Now, it's pretty hard to imagine that. We, we see pictures of floods in our day. I can still see that, the video of that tsunami washing up on the shores of India or wherever it was over there in the subcontinent. And we just saw pictures of the floods in the south as a result of a hurricane here in the United States. We see the pictures, we hear people on TV talking about what it's like to be a part of something like that, but we really can't imagine it. And so we really can't imagine what it was like in the days of Noah. All life, human, animal, upon the whole earth, destroyed. So incomprehensible that, that many skeptics deny it ever happened couldn't happen. Well, the Bible says it did. It was the judgment of an almighty and sovereign God on an earth that desperately needed to be cleansed of its filth. But here at the end of, of that story, there's a note of grace, a promise from God that it won't happen again. He says, as long as the earth endures. There will be floods again, of course, we've seen them. There will be people who die in floods, sometimes by the thousands, but this promise in, in Genesis chapter 8 says that the judgment of God will never again disrupt human existence and nature's rhythms in such a total way. God guarantees that the the rhythms of nature, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, life and death, summer and, yes, even winter will never cease. That's a promise from our sovereign God. And you're saying, okay, so what? Kind of interesting, but so what? Well, that means that that winter is in the divine order of things. There's winter because God wants there to be winter. It is, let me put it this way, it is a gift of God's grace. Winter comes from God's hand, not as a curse on a fallen world, but as a blessing on a good creation. And so, in the songbook of God's redeemed people, the Psalms, you hear words of praise to God for the gift of winter. Psalm 147 says, praise the Lord, and then it says in verse 16, because He scatters the snow like wool and the frost like ashes. Psalm 148, the next Psalm over, harks back to the promise of Genesis 8, when it says, God sets them in place forever. The seasons He sets in place forever. Praise the Lord from the earth, it says. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do His bidding. Now, I'll grant you that, that when you're stuck in a snow drift and there's nobody to push you out, when your heating bills are flying up through the chimney, when your cabin fever sick because you haven't been outside for days because it's so cold, it is hard to see winter 
as a gift of grace. But it is. Because there are things that happen in winter to nature and to us that are necessary to life, to growth, to fruitfulness. As I researched that subject, I found lots of references to the way winter is good for plants. And that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, I look at what winter does to plants. I see them lying there beaten down and soggy and brown and broken. And it doesn't make sense that winter is good for plant life. So I, I call my friendly local greenhouse lady, Mary Romance, a member of my last church, and asked her about that. I said, Mary, what's up with that? The dead of winter is good for a plant life? She said, Obvious. absolutely, absolutely. I said, why? Well, she said, when winter comes, plants go dormant. They take a rest to get ready for the growing season. They need the rest that comes with winter. And that blanket of snow that lies over the ground keeps the earth at a constant temperature so that the plants have their own little icy greenhouse. And underneath the two or three or four inches of frozen turf, there's all kinds of living life going on. Roots being soaked with moisture so that when the growing time comes, they're ready. And she said, you're Dutch, you, you know about tulips. Yeah, I do. Well, they don't grow well in warmer climates, she said. They need the cold to pack energy into them so that when spring does come, they can burst through the frozen turf of winter. We call it the dead of winter, but it is really a time that's essential to growing and fruitfulness in life. But the blessing of winter is even more profound than that. Here's a little science quiz for you junior high students. How many of you know what the anthropic principle is? How many of you senior citizens know what the anthropic principle Does anybody know what the... Well, I didn't either. I read about it in Time magazine. It's the idea that the earth, the universe, against all odds, is finely tuned for life. Let me read a little bit from Time magazine. Many of the most fundamental characteristics of the cosmos, the relative strengths of gravity, electromagnetism, the forces that operate inside atomic nuclei, as well as the masses and relative abundance of different particles are so finely tuned that if one of them were changed even a little bit, the force of gravity, the way atomic nuclei are built, the number of elements in the universe, if any one of them were even minutely changed, life could not exist. Fascinating. And a little complicated. So let me make it a little simpler by just talking about winter and the anthropic principle. You've heard of global warming. Scientific community, many environmentalists, 
politicians, some preachers are up in arms about global warming. Now, you might disagree with the doomsday talk that you hear about what will happen if the temperature rises only a little, if winter changes just a little, what will happen? You might not agree with that. You might certainly disagree with how humans are involved in global warming, but it is that whole idea an example of the anthropic principle. How finely tuned the world is and how necessary to life is winter. It's absolutely essential. Now, that, that same article, this is maybe more interesting than anything else, but I'll throw it out. That, that same article talked about how scientists really don't know why the world is this way, why it's so finely tuned. It's a mystery, the anthropic principle. It talked about a, a, a book that some scientists really like called Biocosm, which suggests that this, this whole cosmos is the invention of a super-intelligent extraterrestrial race of beings who programmed it this way. I read that and I said, good grief. How far will people go to avoid the obvious solution to the anthropic principle? Of course, the earth was invented by a super-intelligent extraterrestrial being. His name is God. The Israelites were taught to call him Yahweh. We know him as Jesus. Jesus is the one, says the Bible, who put this earth together with all of its components so that life is possible. And in our text in Genesis 8, God simply repeats that the order of things, the way it's always meant to be, will continue as long as the earth endures. Winter is a part of the blessing of God that makes life possible, that makes life thrive. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's kind of an interesting science lesson you just gave us, but so what? What does this mean for me? Well, let me suggest that it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the parallels between what happens in nature and what happens in our spiritual lives. Winter is important for what happens out there, and it is important for what happens in here, in our spirits. I'm talking now about the bleak midwinter of your soul. I don't know if you've ever had one. I'm guessing that many of you have. Those times when, when your spiritual life is just cold when there doesn't seem to be any life within your faith has gone dormant, your love has grown cold, your hope has shriveled, there's nothing flourishing, nothing flowering, no fruit in your spiritual life, you are caught in the bleak midwinter of your soul. Our, te our text suggests that 
even as winter is important for out there, it does something to us in here as well. Something life-giving. And you're saying, like what? Well, let me give you an example or two. You know how when there's a heavy snowfall, it lies all over the ground, all sound is muffled. When you get away from the roads, you're out in the forest, there's a thick blanket of snow. It's so very quiet. I mention that because I just read another scientific study about a study to try to hear messages from outer space through these great radio telescopes. They're finely tuned to hear these almost inaudible messages. The article said that to, to enable that to happen, the scientists have to create a quiet zone around the observatories. Even a cell phone ringing might disrupt some little message from outer space, so they create a quiet zone to hear messages from deep space. Well, that's what the winter of your soul does. It creates a quiet zone where things slow down and get still so that you can be still and know God. The still of winter is a perfect time to listen for that still small voice of God that comes to us from deep space. That's one little example. I thought of another one this week when I was studying Psalm 23 for some writing I was doing for the seminary. You all know Psalm 23. You've, you've memorized it. You could probably say it by heart if you had to. Have you noticed, which I had not noticed, that the first part of Psalm 23 uses a different pronoun for God than the second part? You're looking at me like, what are you talking about? Well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What comes next? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table, be you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Over here, when life is good, there are green pastures and quiet waters and right paths. God is He. Over here, when you go through the dark valley, when you're faced with enemies, when life gets hostile and difficult and it's the deep and dark December, God is you. Have you ever noticed that before? Some of us have experienced that in our own lives. When life is going good, it's easy to talk about God. When winter comes, you need to talk to God. He's not just someone you confess. He's someone with whom you communicate. You are with me. Winter makes that happen.
Now, it is, it is, I know it is not easy to be quiet when you want to complain with the Magi. And it is not easy to communicate with God when it feels like He has forsaken you in the bleakness of life. And that is why God gives us signs to look at. When your faith is dormant and your love has grown cold and your hope has shriveled, you need to look at the signs God has given, signs of His grace. I'm thinking here, of course, you're already thinking ahead of me to Genesis 9 where the earth is dry and Noah is out of the ark and God says, look up there at that rainbow. It's a sign of the covenant between me and you and your descendants and all animal life that never again will I do this. When life gets hard, when it's blowing in winter and it's hot in summer and you hate what's going on, that sign reminds you that as long as the earth endures, I will give life even in the hardest times. There are other signs that God has given. I, I look around and notice that right now the communion table and the baptismal fount aren't in view. Is that the baptismal fount? No. Everybody's going, what are you talking about? Well, you have them here. I know you do. That, that water, that bread, that wine is a sign of grace. Signs that point us to that great sign, the cross, where in a terrible dark time the Son of God experienced desertion, desolation, and death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we begin another year of life, I invite you to gaze and gaze on the signs of God's grace and be renewed in your faith that as long as the earth endures, God will keep His promise to give the gift of life in even the worst of times and to give the gift of eternal life at all times through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a sure promise or the bleak midwinter. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for hanging on that cross in that terrible, mysterious darkness at noon so that we could know that God does not forsake us even in the worst of times. It feels that way, we have said that to you, but now we are reminded that it's not true. That God is with us always, that the promise of life is unbreakable, that God's grace never ever lets us go. We pray this morning, O oh Lord, for anybody here who is experiencing a bleak midwinter, who is finding faith hard to come by, who finds it difficult to love, who finds that hope has blown away in the wind. Lord Jesus, 
bring back that spiritual life. And until it comes back, hold each of us closely in your arms. You are faithful to us, and in that we take comfort. In your name we pray it. Amen.